So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please open them up to the book of Revelation. We are continuing our study of this book. We are on the island of Patmos with the Apostle Paul as he is having this vision, this vision of the Lord Jesus and all of his glory. And then in chapter 2, Jesus tells John to start writing letters to various churches in Asia Minor. We've looked at a couple of these letters already. First, the letter to Ephesus, who although they were doing well at persevering under persecution, and although they were doing well at testing false prophets and false teachers, they had lost the love that they had at first. And so for us, that was a warning to us not to allow our love for God, our love for Jesus to grow cold. Last week, we looked at the letter to the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna was undergoing heavy persecution with the promise of even more intense persecution to come. And they just needed to be encouraged that underneath that, the weight of that persecution, that they would remain steadfast and faithful. And so that was a warning to us to not give in to the fear of persecution, but to remain steadfast and faithful. In this morning's text, in the letter that he writes this morning, we're going to see a warning against compromising truth. The church to which Jesus addresses the letter that he gives us in this morning's text is a church that lived in a time of moral relativism, theological confusion, and religious tolerance of pretty much every religion except for Christianity. Does that sound like any other culture that you're aware of? Moral relativism, theological confusion, and religious tolerance of every, seemingly every religion except Christianity. Sounds a lot like us. And around every corner for the Christians in this city that we're looking at, were opportunities for them to compromise, to compromise truth, to compromise themselves morally and ethically as a result of that. And so this morning, we want to listen to what Jesus has to say to that church and that culture because perhaps it is what he would say to this church in this culture. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 down to verse 17. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering as a faith family and worshiping you in song and now worshiping you as we turn to your word, recognizing that we sit underneath it, that it has authority over us because it is your very breath. We thank you for it. We, help, we ask that you would help us to understand it But most importantly, Lord, that we would apply it so that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ, so that you might be glorified in us and in this church. Father, we pray for those among us who perhaps have not come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, as their only hope. We ask, Lord, that the incredibly hopeless and dangerous predicament which they are in now would become readily apparent to them through the preaching of your word. And Lord, that the good news of the gospel would ring true in their heart and in their soul. And that Lord, that you would lead them across the line of faith and that you would gain another worshiper this morning. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've looked at these letters from Jesus to these churches, they follow the same basic format. So we want to follow that same format as kind of a, a, a guideline to help us unpack this text this morning. There's the opening, the body of the letter, and the closing. The opening is here in verse 12. And as with each of the other openings, there are two elements First of all, there is the identification of the audience and then a characterization, really a self-characterization of Jesus that he gives in each of these openings. So here in verse 12, we learn that the audience here is the church in the city called Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? So what do we know about Pergamum and what do we know about this church in Pergamum? Well, this city is about 70 miles north of the one that we looked at last week in Smyrna. So we started in Ephesus, and now we're beginning to make our way around Asia Minor. The city itself, Pergamum, sat on this massive granite hill. If you can think of like Stone Mountain, like much larger, a thousand feet above the plain below. That's where this city sat. It was during the, uh, for the, during the first part of the Roman Empire, it was actually the capital of this area. It was the capital of Asia Minor before it gave up that title to the much larger city, which was Ephesus that we looked at first. But it still had substantial political influ- influence in this region. And for that reason, the imperial cult here held a lot of sway. And so emperor worship was a big part of life in the city of Pergamum. It was much larger. It had been much larger and much more influential during the Greek Empire. 
now during the Roman Empire, this city was more known for its art, for its culture, and it was also famous or infamous for the myriad of uh, temples and altars that it had erected to the Roman pagan deities. For example, in Ephesus, we recall they had the temple to Artemis. In Smyrna, they had the temple to Roma. Here in Pergamum, they had a massive altar to Zeus himself. It was called Zeus Soter, or Zeus the Savior. The, The largest temple in this town was a temple to the Roman god Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing. His symbol was a snake wrapped around a rod, which was the precursor for the symbol that we have today for medicine, which is two snakes wrapped and intertwined around a staff. But in addition to the altar of Zeus and the temple to Asclepius, where there were many, many other temples and altars that were built to the Roman gods. Why was that? Well, the way that one granted, was granted entrance into the trade guilds in this area was through paying homage to their gods. If you wanted to be granted entrance into a trade guild so that you could learn that trade and practice in that trade and earn an income for you and for your family, then the only way to do that is by first going and worshiping at these altars and and paying homage to a particular god. There was a Roman god for each particular trade guild. And so if you wanted into that trade guild, you had to participate in the worship of their pagan gods. So there was a lot, an enormous amount of pressure on the Christians in this city to do that, to compromise, to worship these pagan deities. Because if you didn't, you're going to find it very difficult to make an income. So that was the culture that existed around this church that Jesus is having John write this letter to. The second part of these openings gives us a characterization of Jesus. It's a self-characterization because he gives it to himself. But as we've noted, these are all borrowed from the vision of the glory of Jesus that's given in the second half of chapter 1. And in each of these cases, in these letters, the, the, uh, the characterization that Jesus gives of himself seems to be tailor-suited to the church and the situation that they find themselves in. So to the church in Pergamum, Jesus writes, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, that borrows from chapter 1, verse 16. When John writes, as he sees Jesus, that he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And as we noted when we covered that, this is in reference to Jesus as judge. That he is the righteous judge of the living and the dead. And that that judgment will come from his mouth or from his word. That is, from the scriptures that judgment will come. And so Jesus is introducing himself in this letter to this church in this particular city as the righteous judge. Which gives us an inclination as to what he's going to talk to this church about. That it's going to be a word of judgment and a word of warning. So let's look at the body itself. The body is found 
in verses 13 through 16, the body of the letter. And as in many of the other uh, letters, what we see in the body of the letter here are mainly four elements. Uh, We see commendations from Jesus, things that Jesus says that that they're doing well. We see accusations from Jesus, things that he says that they're not doing well. Exhortations from him, things he commands them to do. And warnings if they do not do them. Now also in each of these letters... He starts the body of the letter by saying that he knows something about them. He knows something about that church. Which to me is just a beautiful reminder that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. The the, the seven churches. That he's walking among them. That he is in the midst of them. That he knows them. That he sees them. And he knows what's going on with them. Which is a reminder to us, church, that Jesus walks among us today. That he sees us, that that he knows us. And so we ought to listen this morning as he commends and accuses, as he exhorts and warns this church. And we search our hearts to see whether or not he might say this to us as he walks among us today. So what does Jesus say he knows about this church? In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, I think this is, this is possibly a reference to the city itself as it sits high on this plain. But he says this is Satan's throne, which to me is a reference to all of the pagan altars and temples for which Pergamum was known. Satan wants to rob the church that is in this city called Pergamum of its influence wants to rob this church of its witness and its ability to um, proclaim God's glory and live for God's glory and reflect and extend God's glory all throughout Asia Minor. And Jesus says to this church, you're living in a dark place. You're living in a dark place. It's, it's like the, the city where you are in, church, it's like Satan's throne. He's very active there, and he's trying to rob you of your witness. He's trying to to drag you into these pagan altars and these pagan temples. He's trying to convince you to compromise so that you would sacrifice to their idols and compromise truth. He's trying to remove your voice and your influence, and he wants to do that because if he can, then he will rob God of his glory, or at least try to. But Jesus says to this church, but you guys are doing well. You guys are doing well at this. Look at the rest of verse 13. He says, yet you hold fast my name. You've endured well. You've stood strong under weight, under the weight of that persecution and pressure. The word for hold fast here is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 1, when Jesus refers to himself as the one who holds fast the seven stars. And so just as Jesus holds fast the seven stars, which, we, which he noted were the, were the seven angels that referred to the seven churches, just as Jesus holds fast to them, Jesus commends this church for holding fast to what? his name 
To hold fast to Jesus' name means to embrace him for who he is, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, that he is King, that he is Redeemer and Messiah. To hold fast to Jesus' name means to, to hold firm to him, to have a firm grip on him, and to never lose that hold, to never abandon faith in him or trust in him or hope in him or love in him. Unlike the church at Ephesus, whose love had grown cold, not so here in Pergamum. They held a firm grip to Jesus. He goes on to say at the end of verse 13, And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. According to tradition, Antipas was not just a member of this church and a citizen of this town, but the Apostle John himself had ordained him Bishop of Pergamum under the reign, back in the reign of the Emperor Nero. But apparently, according to early sources, Antipas had been boldly preaching in town that the Christians, he was boldly preaching that they should not engage in the temple practices, the pagan worship that was happening all around them in town. That they should not give in to that. That they should not participate in that. And it was beginning to have an influence. The Christians were starting to stop doing that. They, they weren't sacrificing to the idols. And the pagan priests were not happy about that. And so they dragged Antipas away into one of their temples. And they set him ablaze as they would set one of their sacrifices ablaze. And Jesus says that he was a faithful witness and that he was killed because he was a faithful witness. And as you can imagine, in town, that would have made it very difficult for other Christians to remain a faithful witness in Pergamum. But Jesus says that even after that happened, you didn't deny my faith. So Jesus commends them he commends them that you hold fast to my name and that you don't deny faith in me. But this church, like all churches, is far from perfect. And so Jesus accuses them. He says he's got, he's got not just one thing against them. As he says in verse 14, I've got a few things against you. First, he says in verse 14, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is a story that we find in the book of Numbers that John's audience would have been familiar with. This is a story of Balak, who was the king of Moab, the enemy of Israel, and they were warring with one another. And Balak, the king of Moab, wanted the upper hand. And so what he did is he tried to take one of Israel's prophets, this guy named Balaam, to take Balaam to himself so that, so that Balaam would speak a word of curse against the Israelites and blessing on the Moabites. But Balaam, who in Scripture is infamous not for being a false prophet, but for being a wicked prophet. 
he soon discovered that all he could say is what is exactly what God told him to say. In fact, there was a moment where he intended to do otherwise. He intended to, to do what Balak asked him to do because Balak was offering him a, a reward if he spoke curses on the Israelites and blessing on the Moabites. And so Balaam intended to do that. And we have the story in Numbers 22 of God sending a donkey to meet with him and, and intercede on his behalf. A strange little story where Balaam is taught a lesson to only speak what God tells you to speak. But Balaam's in a fix because, again, he's a wicked prophet and he wants the reward that Balak is offering to him. And so he devises a way in order to um, help Balak and get his reward. And his plan to do this is to convince the Israelite soldiers to mess around with the Moabite women and take part in their pagan religious practices and festivals. And as the story goes, as a result of this, God punishes the Israelites and kills 24,000 of them, which greatly weakens the Israelite army. Moses writes in Numbers 31, verse 16, In reference to this story, behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So that's what's being referred to. That's the story that's being referred to here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, when Jesus talks about the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So what was the the stumbling block that Balaam put before the sons of Israel that convinced them that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality? Those are things that that they knew. They they, They were convinced it was clearly out of bounds for them. It was clearly a violation of what God had told them to do and not to do. And so what was the stumbling block that led them to think otherwise? Fundamentally, although we don't know exactly what it was, fundamentally, it was a rejection of revealed truth that persuaded them that moral compromise was no big deal. And so they were convinced that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We don't know. Maybe he persuaded them that it was just not that big of a deal to do that. Maybe he persuaded them that they had liberty. They had liberty to do this, to participate in these things. Maybe he said, hey, this is going to make you stronger if you do this. And then you'll be able to defeat the Moabite army. We know at least in part that the stumbling block that he put in front of them was the Moabite women themselves to mess around with the Israelite men. But that was the story of Balaam. And because of that incident, he becomes infamous in Scripture for being a wicked prophet. But now Jesus says here in chapter 2, verse 14 of Revelation, he says to this church in Pergamum, you have some among you who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. In other words, there there are some people in your church who have given themselves to a, a false teaching that has persuaded them that moral compromise 
is no big deal. I wonder, church, is there any teaching in our culture today? Any teaching that rejects revealed truth that has the potential to persuade some of us that moral compromise is no big deal. It's all around us, right? We live during a time of moral revolution. Whether it's the redefinition of marriage or the rejection that there are only two genders or that life begins not just in, in the womb but at the very moment of conception and that the woman's right to end that pregnancy is of greater importance than the life itself because after all, that is not a life, it's just tissue. Those are some of the more obvious examples of this, but there are more subtle ones, like what you do in your own home behind closed doors when nobody is watching is no big deal and doesn't hurt anyone. It has no implications outside of your own home. Or what you watch on television or what you watch on your devices has no moral consequences. Or maybe perhaps even that social justice is the highest good of the gospel. Not that sinners are rescued from eternal judgment, but that social justice is the highest good. And therefore... It is more important to right social wrongs than it is to declare good news to sinners. These are just a a few of the examples of teaching in our culture, our society today, that has the potential to persuade Christians to compromise. Now, for the Christians here in Pergamum, there was a high cost to not participating in these pagan festivals. It meant that they would be excluded from the trade guilds. It meant that it would be very difficult for them to make an income and survive. So that was a very, very high price for them to pay. And some, apparently, in this church were not willing to pay it. It was too too high of a price. And so they compromised their moral convictions so that they might be accepted by society so that they might participate in the economic prosperity of that culture so today anyone who does not abide by the rules of the moral revolution pays a price maybe they're canceled maybe they're silenced maybe they're rejected by society and more and more as we see examples of this perhaps even are excluded from participating in the economic prosperity of our land. The question is, are we willing to pay that price? More and more, I believe, as the culture around us continues to drift into even more significant moral relativism and secular humanism, we will more and more see opportunities for compromise. And if we don't compromise, the price could end up being very, very high. 
Now, parenthetically, I don't see on the near horizon, I don't see the kind of physical persecution against Christians happening in our country like we talked about last week. But what I do see, and I am no prophet, please don't put this down as Ken said this, but I do see on the near horizon the possibility that things like financial contributions to churches like ours, churches that don't agree and don't affirm with the tenets of the moral revolution, that those kind of financial contributions will no longer be tax deductible. You get to the end of the year and you start adding up your tax deductible contributions to, to approved charities, your giving to the church will no longer be part of that. And the question is, Will you still give to the church? I see that as possible even within my own lifetime in this country. Perhaps one example of this that you may have heard in in the news in recent months, a well-known Christian adoption agency that also does places foster children in homes that has long held to the biblical definition of marriage that marriage is between one man and one woman, has now abandoned that orthodox position and has now opened up adoption of these children and placing foster children in the homes of homosexual parents. And why? Because of money. The state, the government, has told them in no uncertain terms that if they don't allow placement of foster children and adoptive children in homes of homosexual parents, then they will remove that federal funding, that funding from the government. And so these adoption agencies, some of them, have caved. And the question is, will we cave when those same financial, economic, and social pressures are laid heavy on us? Jesus says to this church, I hold this against you. I hold this against you. You've got some folks there who have bought into this, who have compromised themselves morally. I walk among you, and I see them at the altar of Zeus. I see them in the temple of Asclepius. I see them offering sacrifices to idols and engaging in sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes. I see them, and I hold this against you, church. Jesus also holds against them in verse 15. He says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Some of our early church fathers, like Irenaeus and Hippolytus, tell us that the Nicolaitans were begun by the Nicholas of Act. Acts chapter 6, one of the first seven deacons of the church in Jerusalem, that somewhere along the way he gave in to heresy and he began teaching heresy and leading others astray. And we're not told what the heresy is. We're not told what that false teaching was. Some say it has ties to Gnosticism, but we just don't know for sure. It only, we, all that we know Whatever it was, is that it involved not only moral compromise, but theological compromise. And friend, the point here is that those two always go together. Those two always go together. 
theological compromise always eventually leads to moral compromise. And perhaps sometimes backwards, moral compromise, because we're doing what we want to do, eventually leads to theological compromise because then we seek to justify it theologically. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong practice. Right doctrine leads to right practice. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Unorthodoxy leads to sin. And so if we're flirting with theological compromise, then it's only a matter of time before that eventually leads to moral compromise. It always does. So Jesus holds this against the church there in Pergamum. There are some among them who have given in to one or both of these, theological and moral compromise. And so Jesus exhorts them and warns them in verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the exhortation here is to repent, to to turn, to change, to do something different. That's a command that's given here, but the question is, to whom is it given? To whom does Jesus give this command to repent? I don't think he gives it primarily to those who have given themselves to the teaching of Balaam or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Those are Christians that I believe are referred to in the second half of chapter uh, verse 16 in the third person. They are the them. When Jesus says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Them are the believers in the church who have fallen into the the false teaching of of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans and have been persuaded into moral and theological compromise. And so it's not them to whom Jesus issues this command. It's given to the you. It's given to the church. It's given to the rest of the believers in that church in Pergamum. Now, what do they have to repent of? What do they have to repent? They're, they're, they're not the ones giving in to the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. They didn't go to the altar of Zeus. They didn't go to the temple of Asclepius. They're not the ones offering sacrifices to the idols. They're not the one engaging in sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes. What do they have to repent of? From what do they need to turn or change? Friends, I believe this to be an indictment on this church for not making doctrinal purity and biblical fidelity a priority. And somehow allowing false teaching to creep into the church. Not the whole church, mind you, but just part of it. A family here or there. I think it's also an indictment on them for for not shepherding one enough well enough, theologically and morally, that somewhere along the way, folks have begun to flirt with false teaching and nobody stepped in to stop them. And it was allowed to continue until they compromised themselves morally and or theologically. And their fellow believers there in this church were either so uninvolved in one another's lives that they didn't notice 
or they were too cowardly and passive to do anything about it, to lovingly warn them to reject unbiblical teaching and to embrace biblical truth without compromise. For us today, I believe this to be an exhortation to us, to the church today, to make biblical fidelity a priority in the church. To make biblical fidelity, doctrinal purity a priority and to shepherd one another in the body of Christ. To love one another and to know one another well enough to where when someone begins to drift off into false teaching and moral compromise, we will notice it and we will lovingly correct them and bring them back. And if they do give themselves to moral and theological compromise, and when corrected, they don't turn back from that and repent, then I believe that Jesus' exhortation here for the New Testament church presupposes faithfulness to church discipline to remove the leaven from among you. As Paul tells the church in Corinth, to purge the evil person from you. And if we don't, then we have Jesus' warning in verse 16. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, this is a picture of judgment. Jesus is the one who brings judgment and he brings it through his mouth, through his word through the logos of God, the word of God, the scriptures. But to whom will this judgment come? He says, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus is going to come and, and war against those who had given themselves to the teachings of the Nicolaitans and, the ba- and, and Balaam and have compromised themselves theologically and morally. But as we know from the Apostle Paul, we are all members one of another, and so when judgment comes against one of us, it comes against all of us. I don't think this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. I think this is some other kind of imminent judgment for this church that is warned to them that if they don't change how they do things, that he will come and bring judgment if they don't start making doctrinal purity and fidelity a priority and start shepherding one another to make sure that none are compromising. And then Jesus closes the letter in verse 17. As in all of the closings of each of these letters, they first include a reminder that this news is for all the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So the exhortation is not just for the church in the city of Pergamum. This is for all the churches. Why? Because we know that every single church has the potential to compromise with the prevailing teaching of the culture around it. And in doing so, that some of their number could be persuaded into compromise if they're not diligent to watch over them. Any church could have some of their number drift into theological or moral compromise and so it's for all of us but also as with all of these letters in the closing there also is included a promise to the one who conquers Jesus says to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one 
who receives it. So the one who conquers or the one, the one who obeys this, who obeys the exhortation to uh, repent and heeds the warning here to shepherd the church well. The one who conquers will, be, will receive these rewards. So what is the hidden manna that's referred to? What's the white stone? What's the new name that's written on this stone? Well, as the Israelites, back as they were wandering in the wilderness during the time of Moses, God, as you recall, provided sustenance for them with manna from heaven, bread, the bread of heaven that came down and was on the ground like dew in the morning. And it was a reminder to them that God provides for his children. And at one point, God told Moses to take some of that manna and put it in a golden bowl and place that in the Ark of the Covenant for a lasting reminder that God provides for his children. But what Jesus says here is that he is going to serve some of this hidden manna to the one who conquers. And so this is not merely looking back and being reminded that God provides for his children, but it's also looking forward to a time in the future when God's people will be served with this hidden manna at the marriage feast of the Lamb, that great banquet in the new heaven and the new earth where we will feast with Jesus at his table. This is what awaits the one who conquers. He'll receive some of this hidden manna. But the one who conquers is also promised a white stone. Now, what is the deal with this white stone? There are lots of different interpretations, too, that I think are the most likely. First, at legal proceedings of the day, and this actually is a practice that goes back to the Greek time and the Greek court system, but it, it was retained by the Romans as well, But during a criminal case, jurors were given both a white stone and a black stone. The black stone meant guilty. The white stone meant not guilty. And so if you were the defendant at the end of that trial, if you were given a handful of of black stones, that meant you were guilty as charged and that you would receive the full punishment for your crime. But if, however, you received a handful of white stones, then you were declared not guilty, acquitted of all charges, and you were set free without punishment. And if that's the case, then the meaning of this white stone here in chapter 2, verse 17 is quite clear. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes through faith in Jesus Christ, they're given a white stone. They are declared not guilty. They are acquitted of all charges, and they are set free with no punishment. The second option that is available to us in interpreting what this white stone is comes from uh, another tradition of the day that scholars tell us about, whereby white stones were used as um, tickets for admission into uh, various events and performances of the day. That would seem to fit nicely with the idea of the hidden manna being something that served at the marriage supper of the Lamb because because then we who know Jesus by faith are given a white stone as our ticket of admission into that marriage feast whereby we engage in that great supper with the Lamb. But Jesus says that there's a new name that's written on this white stone. Now, if we understand the white stone to refer to the admission 
into uh, the marriage feast, then perhaps this new name is a new name that is given to believers um, once, we are, once we enter into that. that. That's like our admission ticket with, uh, with our name on it. That, that our name is written in the book of life and we get this name and now we get to go into the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if we understand the white stone to refer to the not guilty verdict of believers, then perhaps this new name is really the name of Jesus by virtue of whose righteousness we are declared not guilty and acquitted of all charges against us. Regardless, these are the rewards that await the one who conquers. And as we've said each week as we close these letters, we conquer. We are the conquerors only by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by self-effort. Not by trying real hard to be a better Christian. But by faith in Christ alone. If you've come to faith in Christ if you've trusted in his death and resurrection as your only hope for rescue from judgment, the judgment that you and I both deserve because of our rebellion against God, then you will be given a white stone and you will be granted entrance into the marriage supper of the Lamb and you will be served the hidden manna and live eternally with this Jesus who now dictates this letter through the Apostle John. But friend, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, that metaphorical stone in your hands is black. And that means you are guilty as charged. And you have no means by which you are granted admission into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the hidden manna will remain hidden for you forever. If that describes you, friend, while you are hopeless to change that dangerous and hopeless predicament yourself, Christ Jesus the Lord beckons you to come to faith in him, to trust in him as your only and certain hope for rescue from what you deserve. He beckons you to come to him in repentance of sins and faith in him as your Lord. So church, may we learn from this exhortation and warning to this church in Pergamum. May we, like them, be exemplary in holding fast to Jesus and not denying our faith in him. But may, may we, unlike them, resist the urge to flirt with false teaching and compromise ourselves morally and theologically. And may we be so vigilant and courageous and loving in our care for one another that we notice when one of us drifts into false teaching and we warn them and lovingly correct them to return and embrace truth. In so doing we will prepare ourselves as a church to be a church that glorifies God no matter what pressures come at us in the culture around us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this encouragement that we find in your word. 
about a church that finds themselves in a culture that in many ways mirrors the one around us. Father, we recall that we are sent to that culture. We're, we're, We're meant, we're still here in this culture to reach this culture with the gospel. Father, as we navigate through this culture with the pressures to compromise, we know that when we compromise truth and when we compromise morally, we damage our witness. We hamstring ourselves against reaching the very culture that you've sent us to. And so God, would you, would you help us as a church to make biblical fidelity a priority? Not just from the pulpit, but in our homes. And Lord, give us a a love and a genuine concern for one another that that we invest in one another's lives so much so that we will see when when some of us begin to drift. And and it's, it's eventual. It's going to happen. It does happen. Help us to see it, Lord. Help us to love one another well enough to lovingly and graciously but courageously correct that and bring them back to an embrace of truth that we find in your word. In obedience to this, Father, we, we anticipate that you will make us a church that brings you glory and, and that is prepared to live for you and not to deny you and to not to compromise you no matter what pressures come at us in the days ahead. And so we're thankful, Father, that you are doing this in and among us. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen.